Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. See it, hear it, think it. Talk radio and talk TV. Good morning and welcome to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham right here on Talk TV. It is, of course, the beginning of yet another week, the second week in 2023. And guess what? Prince Harry still tops the news. He's on the front pages of all the papers uh, after his interview last night with Tom Bradby uh, on ITV. Possibly one of the worst interviews I think I've ever had the misfortune of watching. I did watch it because I said I would. I haven't watched the Netflix series. Uh, I won't read his book, but I will watch the interviews that he does uh, purely and simply to see what he looks like while he's answering these questions. Incredibly, last night, uh, he denied that he and Meghan had never suggested or said that the royal family was in fact racist. This despite picking up an award from the Kennedy Foundation uh, just a month ago for fighting institutional racism in, yep, you guessed it, the royal family. What they didn't do after that was get up on stage and say, actually, it's all very well giving us a nice award for fighting institutional racism in the royal family, but actually there isn't any. So we probably should give the award back. I mean, it's really quite extraordinary. He also seems to have misrecollected all sorts of other bits and pieces. Uh, The Taliban are still after him, by the way. They're now calling for reparations to the royal family uh, for the 25 people that he killed. Uh, They're now also saying that he should stand uh, for war crimes in the tribunal in The Hague. This is pretty rich coming from the Taliban, it has to be said. But there's lots going on this morning. Ben Habib is here with us. I'm going to get his view on what on earth Harry thinks he's doing. Uh, He seems to have taken too many mushrooms smoked too much weed and snorted just a few too many lines of cocaine. That's before we get to the ketamine, uh, which technically is a horse tranquilizer, which he's obviously been given by Megan on several occasions uh, in order to spend any time with her at all. But, you know, there's still a cost of living crisis. We'll talk about that. There's still a junior doctor strike, potentially. We'll talk about that. There is still also, of course, Mick Lynch the Grinch, who wants to choose a general strike to bring down the country. Rishi Sunak refuses to say whether he uses uh, private health care. Everybody knows that he does. You might as well just admit it because the NHS is completely and utterly broken and useless. We've got plenty of your calls to take as well. 0344 499 1000. We're going to talk to Mark Bukowski. We're going to talk to Mark Littlewood. Angela Levin is going to be here. Peter Hitchens is here as well. It's going to be a fabulous show. Do join us and join us for the next three hours. This is Talk TV. Well... Good to be back. That was good. I mean, a couple of days <laughs> away and a bit of uh, refreshment over the course of did the weekend. Did you read that or did you just say no, that? No, I just said it. That yeah. is really impressive. I just said it. Because yeah. the thing is, yeah. I, when you read things, it's yeah, different. Yeah, it's stilted. It's very yeah. different. Yeah. You know, people say to me, "What do you know, how do you know what we're going to talk about? And quite often I don't really. I sort of just say yeah. it. Yeah, yeah. Good Whatever comes into my yeah. mind. And 
I must admit, uh, watching it last night, and I was sort of, I, I thought, I've never done such a thing before, but I, I said I was going to live tweet to the interview, so that's what I did. So I just kept putting things down. Uh, and as I reread them this morning, I thought, isn't that interesting how he first comes across, you know, and he talks a bit about, you know, his relationship with his mother, and then he talks a bit about his relationship with women. I mean, sensibly, most of what the interview was was just one long whine about the fact that people weren't know. very nice to him. <laughs> And you go, what? I know, one you of the most in, privileged yeah, individuals on in the a, planet. In a six, yeah. They bought a £16 million house. Now, not very many people can afford to do that. Um, even wealthy people can't afford £16 million on a house. You know, he lives a life of absolute luxury, flies around on private jets, he plays polo on every continent of the planet, you know... Um, he has got a really, lovely family. He's got a lovely family. Yeah. He's got two kids of his own. I mean, I said this last week. Why on earth would he do what he's doing, not only to his own children, but to his, his nieces and nephews, you know, to William and, and Kate's yeah. kids, you know, the, to whom he's supposed to be a loving he's uncle. He's hugely self-indulgent. He really he? is. And he talks a lot about wanting to reconcile with his father, who he didn't bother acknowledging in the book, by the way. He de dedicated the book to his mother, but mm. not to his father. Um, he wants to get back together with his brother, I mean, he's massively deluded. I mean, yeah. I'm not joking when I say that all the drugs he's taken might have had to, taken a toll on his brain <laughs> and fried it, you know? It's incredible, isn't it? Yeah, well, he's definitely got a screw loose. There's no doubt about that. The way that he can justify whinging at the same time as just passing over, cursorily killing 25 people yeah. and describe them as pieces on a chessboard. You know, I understand you have to dehumanise the enemy when you're well, in except, battle. Except that's not what the army say. The army say that's exactly what you don't do, that you don't oh, dehumanise really? them. Oh, really? OK. Yeah. In fact, senior members of the military last week were saying, you know, that's a really bad disservice that he's done to all the people who fight in the British forces because actually that's exactly what you don't do. Because really? you might yeah. find yourself uh, lying next to, in a hospital bed, uh, a member of the Taliban, and they get treated in field hospitals the same as our troops yeah, do. Yeah, quite right. And the Geneva yeah. Convention yeah. suggests that you have to feed them. If you take them prisoner, you can't torture them. All of those things that yeah. the Taliban and ISIS do, we don't do. So, you know, he's, he's wrong yeah. about that. Yeah. So, you know, I just I find it extraordinary that, um, that he's managed, amongst everybody that he's um, sort of peed off, as it were, he's managed to upset the Taliban. I mean, that takes <laughs> yes. some doing, doesn't They're it? They're all queuing up at Waterstones you know, to get a signed well, autograph. We saw that picture at the <laughs> it's weekend. It's superb, isn't it? It really is. But it's, but it's incredible. Like, he's so self-deluded and so self-obsessed that, that, that no, he, he's making millions and millions and millions of pounds out of basically not being treated very well. I know. It's one long whinge. It really is. It's amazing. A ginge whinge. Yes. But it's not all we're talking about. We will get to other things. But, I mean... It seems, I mean, I was talking to Richard Tice on Friday and I said, surely at some point or other, um, you know, Charles or, you know, William will have to say something. But, but Richard disagreed. He said, no, I think it's better if they keep a stony silence. Maybe he's right. Yeah. Maybe, maybe Just, they shouldn't say anything because at the moment it's so deranged that you almost don't want to dignify yeah, it. Yeah, absolutely. I, I think it's right probably to be quiet. I don't know how they deal with the coronation. I personally would not be inviting him to it. Well, I think he's now a, sec a huge security risk. He's persona non grata. Because he's literally, you know, a suicide bomber's dream, isn't he? <laughs> you know, I mean, seriously, I mean, without wishing to make light of it, you know, you don't invite people who are literally, he's like a ticking time bomb for the Taliban. Yeah. And uh, there's enough nutters in this country that might want to blow him up. <laughs> you know, so I wouldn't invite him anywhere near Britain. <laughs> Thanks very much. We've got enough problems. Amazing. Um, but let's talk about um, some real issues as well. Yeah. Um, because the cost of living, I was reading over the course of the, of the weekend, because uh, the, the thing that I find astonishing, and I know we live in the southeast, so it might be slightly more, um, you know, wealthy than other parts of the country. 
But there doesn't seem to be any shortage of people out there on the roads. Every petrol station you pass is rammed with cars. Every shop I go to is full of people buying stuff. I mean, where are they all getting the money from if they're all broke? Yeah, it may be illusory, that, Mike. You know, I think people are suffering. And um, you only need a very small percentage movement in people's welfare in order for them to go from being reasonably comfortable to being you know, in discomfort. Yes. And people are still obliged to go around their daily business. So I think there's a kind of false um, impression that we might get just looking at the streets. One thing that is interesting is that over the... Is in the last time it was easy to get a, uh, uh, a booking at a restaurant in London, I yeah. think it was in the 1991 recession. Yeah. That was a really proper recession. Right. And in 2008, you could, always, uh, you could never get a booking right. in a London restaurant. But again, nowadays, again, I'm finding that you can get bookings. So there is, it's only very limited window. No, but these, are all, no, but these and, are all interesting anecdotal. insights into, into the hospitality business as well, because we yeah. speak to an awful lot of people uh, who talked about this past Christmas not being very good. And a lot of businesses are going to be going under. A lot of pubs are closing, not least because of the electricity bills they're now receiving. Yeah, um, and, 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 and the rail strikes. Yeah. And, and it is discretionary spend. Mm. What do you do if you have to tighten your belt? You, you cut your discretionary spend first, don't you? Yes. All your staples, right. um, you know, obviously have to continue. And what you might be seeing is activity around, you know, core necessity as Mm. opposed to, uh, you know, what people might wish to do with their Yeah, and maybe even more expensive places, I suppose, won't suffer as much as the kind of middle ones because the ones, people who can afford to spend loads of money on a restaurant are going to continue to do it, presumably. But it's it's all people in the middle. Yeah, who who, get squeezed. It's always the middle retailers, you know, the middle fashion brands, Mm. um, the discount retailers tend to survive depending on what sterling's doing and where they get yeah. their products from because sterling can have a big effect on discount retailers and higher end as you say they get reasonably unaffected because the rich are always rich yeah. but it's that middle ground that really suffer and that's where we've had it you know theresa may recognized that when she made that fantastic speech on the steps of downing street when she became prime minister and she said you know she talked about the just about managing in the united kingdom and that brexit was an opportunity to fix the problems that had beset not just the working class but the middle classes it's mu- it's a much bigger bigger problem mm. and of course it's got a lot worse since Theresa May was prime minister yeah. partly to do with lockdowns and um, Boris Johnson's mm. governance but also partly to do with the fact that the government hasn't got on and taken advantage of all the opportunities no. that Brexit offered deregulating and then of course then the ever-increasing tax burden on well, people. I was about to get to that because we've got looming at the weekend. Uh, I saw a piece written about the different parts of the country where the new sort of 12p stealth fuel tax is likely to affect people the most. And it basically wipes out pretty much the red wall seats for the Tory party. But what on earth are they thinking, putting up fuel duty by 12 pence? This was something that Jeremy Hunt sort of sneaked into his budget They should be cutting it. They should be taking it down. They should they? be taking it down. Mm. Absolutely. And this is where I think Jeremy Hunt and Rishi Sunak in particular, fundamentally wrong. In their pursuit of balancing the books, Mm. what they fail to realise is that you can't tax your way out of this problem. What we've now got is an economy where there's no growth, where taxation is high, business capital is fluid. Mm. It will seek out the highest rates of return and, and that involves 
a, a calculation on tax as well. Mm. So capital, even for British businesses, are going to stop being invested. It's going to yes. stop, and it's going to find homes abroad. Yeah. It's going to find better growth areas with lower taxation rates. Sure. And then you end up in this downward like spiral. Ireland, for example. Oh, well, I, I mean, I... I <laughs> Although I know it's not yeah. a great example. But, yeah, you know, you know but, or Poland. But their taxes are low, aren't they? Their taxes are low, 12.5% corporation mm. tax. You know, Northern Ireland had one hand tied, both hands tied behind its back yeah. for the last 20 years mm. trying to compete with the Republic, which has this ultra-low corporation tax. Yes. And Rishi's about to exacerbate the problem by putting it up to 25% north mm. of the border. Yeah. They, they run an open economy. It's a really good example, actually, mm. of how Northern Ireland has been overlooked by the British government. Yeah. Um, but but you know it's much it's much bigger than that. The problem is much bigger because once businesses start finding homes for their capital abroad mm. because there's higher growth rates and lower taxes, you end up in a self fulfilling spiral of which is downwards. Mm. You know, Rishi talked in his speech last week when he talked about the five points he was going oh, to deliver. Yeah. How innovation was at the heart of his growth policy. Yes. Companies only innovate through investment mm. and you only invest if you believe in growth and low taxation, yes. that you can make a proper return on the investment you make. We will not innovate as an economy if our tax rates are out of kilter mm. and we're not growing. And Jeremy Hunt and Rishi Sunak simply have not got that message. No. And they've got to get out of this. We've got to balance the books at all costs. Mm. We're not going to go for growth until we've got inflation under control. Cutting taxes, yeah. such as on fuel, cutting VAT on fuel, cutting VAT on domestic goods, that is not inflationary. Right. That actually has an immediate disinflationary impact right. on the economy. And it puts money in people's pockets. Mm. Dealing with the strikes would be so much easier if they had cut these taxes on activity. Taxes, you They've know, left themselves effectively no wiggle room, haven't they, they? That's part of the problem. There's nowhere to go anymore. Th so all they can do is put taxes up, which is completely yeah. So wrong. they've borrowed to the maximum of mm. their limit. So now we've got borrowing as high as it's ever uh, higher than it's ever yeah. been. Um, we've got taxes now at, at you know seventy year high and virtually impossible to go mm. higher. Yeah. And no growth in the economy. They have created a mammoth problem out of which he will not get before the next election. No. It's not going to happen. The Tories are in real trouble. Oh, they really are. Absolutely. Stay where you are, Ben, because we've got more things to talk about, including the standing charge, because that's going to go up apparently as well in the electricity bill that you get once a, a quarter, uh, which makes absolutely no sense at all. We're talking to Ben Habib. We'll take your calls. Lots of you want to get on already. 0344 499 1000 is the number. More after this. Talk TV. Welcome back to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham right here on Talk TV. We've got lots to talk about. Angela Levin's going to be here to talk some more about the royal family. Mark Bukowski, of course, as well. He's a sort of brand guru. We'll find out what he thinks is happening uh, to the Harry and Meghan brand. I wonder uh, if it's not getting a little bit tainted. But Ben Habib is here. Ben, let's talk a bit about energy and electricity bills, because I saw a story at the weekend in which it said, once again, the standing charge, which everybody has noticed has gone up, and apparently it's gone up 50% in a year, that you get on your electricity uh, bill is going to go up yet again because of yet another failed uh, electricity company called Bulb, yeah. which was bought by Octopus. But because they went bust, apparently we're having to foot the bill. I don't understand why that is the case. 
Well, the bailout was six and a half billion pounds. You know, just think about that for a moment. Right. That is a massive amount of money. It would do one third of all public sector wage rises mm. at 10 percent. Right. That one bailout alone, which we're not even aware of. It's right. happened under the radar. Yeah. Hasn't and so it? what is the bailout uh, for and who does it benefit? So Bulb, basically, the idea behind Bulb and its business model was it's about three years old. And mm. the idea was that you'd get these intermediaries that would buy energy wholesale and then sell it on to the public right. as retailers. Which sounds to me a bit like sort of encouraging second-hand car dodgy dealing. It, it is. Right? The, uh, so I think the if there was an honourable motive, mm. it was to introduce competition into the buying and selling of energy. Right. But actually all you do is create friction in the system yeah. because you've got another intermediary taking their cut. And of course, there was, a, there was, a, there was a, a, an energy cap price put in place anyway. Mm. And... Uh, so what they were doing was effectively the equivalent of borrowing short and lending long. Right. And when energy prices went up, they got squeezed yeah. and went bust. Right. But because they had so many customers relying on them, the government couldn't face, I think it was about one and a half million customers being without energy. Right. So they bailed bulb out, bulb right. out and then sold it on to a company called Octopus mm. for a massive discount yes. just before... The latest energy bailout by the government for the consumer, mm. which effectively is a gilt-edged guarantee that Octopus will now make money mm. out of bulb. Yeah. So well, they Octopus, bailed out bulb. Because also Octopus <laughs> as a company is making massive profits as well. Uh, it is, and mm. it's going to. I mean, it's going to capitalize like Bilio right. on on bulb because bulb has been put right by the exchequer, right. and then Octopus and bulb have been given a gilt edge buyer of their energy, mm. which is effectively the yeah. government. And basically, for as long as this cap the remains in place, consumers who bought into bulb are now handed on a plate to Octopus, so it's not even and that's it. open competition that's it. there because it just means well, you just take all those consumers and you now have them on your books. I just don't understand why we, the consumer, the hard-pressed taxpayer, are picking up the tab for this. But it's a rare... You know, w what this tells me again and again, and you see this again and again, Mike, is that the government shouldn't be intervening in the markets. The government needs to scale back. It needs to cut taxes, deregulate, get out of the way of business. Mm. If businesses go bust... Their shareholders and their creditors have to take the yeah. hit. You can't keep bailing people out. Well, that's certainly out. part of the business of business. I mean, you, you, make a, you make a gamble, you take a gamble, you invest in something you think is going to work. If it doesn't work, you lose money. That's it. That's the capitalist right? system. Yeah. And the minute you break away from that, you build moral hazard into mm. the system. And you get people taking bigger risks than they should be taking because they, they rely on the state well, coming to their maybe rescue. maybe you and I should finish this show. Um, go and invest in a former company you know call it i don't know light bulb energy or something um you know ben and mike's uh, <laughs> you know new energy curtailing system right and suddenly borrow a load of money from somewhere um make a load of customers happy and then basically rinse the money out take it all for ourselves go and buy a private island in the caribbean um and then go bust and wait for the government to pay And then buy it back from the government yeah. for a quid after it's been bailed out. I mean, I'm out. not joking. That sounds like what's going on. But that is precisely what's gone on. And mm. it's happened many times before, and no doubt it will happen again. Yeah. And I just repeat, the government mustn't intervene. Rishi and Jeremy Hunt need to realise that you can't deal with the economy perpetually through government intervention. They've yeah. got to let the private sector thrive. And they do that by deregulating, cutting taxes, and the government needs to get out of the way mm. and let the market sort it out. Yes. You know, they trashed Liz Truss because the markets didn't like what Liz Truss was doing. Actually, what should have happened 
was the market should have been allowed to do whatever the markets mm. were going to do. Sterling would have done whatever Sterling was going to do. Yeah. And Liz Truss should have done her agenda. Yeah. You know, the Bank of England needed to bail out pension funds because pension fund trustees had been asleep at the wheel mm. over leveraging, buying gilts and yeah. putting all sorts of stupid derivative products in place. They should have been taken to of the course. cleaners, you know, and um, and Liz Truss ended up getting the flack for that. I don't want to get into discussion about Liz Truss per se, but, you know, the, her agenda was absolutely the right mm. one for this country. And she understood that the, the private sector is the only way out of the problems the country now faces. Mm. And Rishi Sunak and Jeremy Hunt well, simply don't get I it. I watched Rishi Sunak's interview yesterday with Lord Kunzberg, and it, it was woeful for me. I mean, she actually did a good interview. It was good from her perspective. But as a prime minister, I don't think he's got a clue what he's doing. I don't think he knows what to do. Uh, he wouldn't even answer a straightforward question, do you have private health care for your family? I understand some people say, well, you shouldn't be talking about your family. Fine. But I think under the circumstances, it's quite an important question. It's an question. entirely valid, like, what you know, what is what is your wife's tax status? Yeah. You know, when you're chancellor, I think that's an entirely valid question. Absolutely. And he should own whatever his private health care yeah. is. He should just absolutely, absolutely say, say, well, yeah, I do have private health care because actually the NHS is, is bust and it's no good. And I wouldn't want to have to rely on it if one of my children... <laughs> children were actually sick. Yeah. That's what I'd say. Well, the, argu- the argument... Well, that is the honest argument. Yeah. The argument he might have been able to make is, well, you know, I'm very rich, I don't need to burden the state with my healthcare problems. Yeah. Um, but-, but it's almost like they're not finessed enough to even expect the question. And you wonder who's, you know, giving them advice, because surely to God, you would walk into that interview thinking, uh, if you're his advisor, well, they're bound to ask him a question about the NHS. What could it possibly be? I- Maybe they'll ask him that. And that's a really interesting point you make, because Rishi trades on his attention to detail, having thought everything through, and therefore his foresight, Mm. his ability to manage. But you've just evidenced Mm. a really basic fundamental failing. And I'm sure you watched his speech when he delivered his five points last week. It was wooden. It was awful. It was awful. He saw the the small boats coming across the channel as unfair. It's not unfair, it's illegal. Well, yeah. It's illegal and it's a burden on the state. He's going to pass some more laws, right? Because people who tend to break the law tend not to care whether you pass a new law. Absolutely right, Mike. What is the point? Passing new laws is not the way forward. No, no. And I mean, out of those five things he said he was going to do, I guarantee you only at least two of them will ever work. One, inflation, because it's not not really within his gift to to lower it or or, or raise it. Uh, and And the cutting back of the debt he can probably do a little bit just by a bit of you know decent accounting but the rest of it you've got no chance there's no chance no it certainly won't be solving the boat crisis no, no. i mean you're not expecting there to be any great change in that then over the course of the next few weeks. none whatsoever mm. and i i mean what's interesting to me from a political perspective and again it comes back to you saying you know he hasn't got p- foresight he's made that a prime ministerial issue yeah. it used to be a home secretary issue yes and he's going to be judged on it. Yeah. And when it comes to March, uh, April, May, when we've got the, the, the elections and boats are still coming across at the same rate as last year, he is going to be yeah. in political well, hot water. Well, then he'd be able to refer back to his brilliant uh, political analysis in which he said, uh, well, we'll either do it or we won't. <laughs> and you go, OK, then. That seems like a fair comment. Ben, great to see you. Thank you very yeah, much indeed. Ben right. Habib, uh, the, the chairman of Brexit Watch, former MEP, of course, as well. Um, we've got so much to talk about. I'm going to take some calls. I'm going to talk to Angela Levin. Harry's still on the agenda. Uh, it's all happening. This is Talk TV. On the app, on your mobile, Talk Radio and Talk TV. 
Welcome back to the Independent Republican Mike Graham right here on Talk TV. Quite a day, isn't it? Uh, we finished last week at a flurry. Uh, over the weekend, millions and millions of you watched clips uh, that we put out either on YouTube uh, or on Twitter. Extraordinary numbers of people. No matter how much you say you don't want to talk about Harry anymore, uh, people do want to watch it. They want to listen to it. They can't quite believe it. Last night, uh, as I say, I was live tweeting the event, uh, the ITV interview. It's the first thing uh, with him that I've actually watched since the Oprah interview. Um, um, but let's have a quick look at what he actually said to Tom Bradby uh, when Tom Bradby asked him about the royal family and racism. In the Oprah interview, you accuse members of your family of racism. You don't even... Really? Well, of... The British press said that. Right. I... Did, did Meghan ever mention that they were racist? She said there were troubling comments about... Yeah, oh, there, there was skin concern color. about his skin colour. Right. Wouldn't you describe that as essentially racist? I wouldn't, not having lived within that family. So, Prince Harry basically denying the story that lit up the entire world with horror when basically uh, he and Meghan alleged that somebody in the royal family was racist, that somebody in the royal family had asked about what colour their son's skin might be and how dark it might be. And at no point did he deny that during the Oprah interview. In fact... They actually picked up, the two of them, this pair of charlatans, they picked up an award for fighting institutional racism inside the royal family only last month. Let's talk to Angela Levin, our favourite royal commentator, because she must be as aghast as I am. Angela, very good morning to you. Good morning. I'm boiling over, actually. Yeah. I couldn't sleep because I was so angry with him. Mm. I, I just, I just, you know, it, it is appalling. And it's nonsense to say that because they left this accusation dangling yeah. since their interview with Oprah Winfrey, which is a long time ago, mm. made no attempt to correct it, made no attempt to sort of modify it. So that, did you feel they were laughing behind their hands yes. that they were keeping us actually to believe, frightening the royal family, yeah. that perhaps they might do things that they want them to do. I mean, I think it's beyond despicable, actually. Right. And to receive... And, and how he can say that it's nonsense, they're not racist, and then accept this award yeah. um, is, is hypocritical yes. beyond the mountain. Duplicitous doesn't even begin to describe it. And also, um, you know, why, if he believes that the royal family are not racist, did he not say at the time to Oprah Winfrey, no, 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 you've got this wrong, don't please misquote us, we are not saying the royal family is racist. Why didn't he say that? Yeah, well, what he did say is the fact that um, Meghan said, often they said to her, you know, we wonder what uh, colour his skin will be. And then when Harry came on later, because obviously Meghan had three quarters of the interview for herself, mm. when he came on, actually, um, Oprah asked him and he said, no, it only happened once. Mm. Now, there was his opportunity, but he endorsed what Meghan was saying. And there is no doubt that the, the, what they wanted us all to think was that the royal family are racist. And, and that's been terrible. I remember soon afterwards, a reporter shouted at Prince William when he was going into an engagement, mm. um, is the royal family racist? And he was obviously so furious because he's usually very dignified. And he turned around and said, no, we are definitely not. Did Harry say something? Did Harry confirm it? No, he obviously liked it because he is just a disgusting person 
that wants to bring other people down because he's got no confidence in himself and he wants to somehow get his own back. What a way to behave. I know. It's extraordinary. And, of course, the other thing um, which I found remarkable about the way that the interview was conducted was that Bradby didn't, because they're friends, right, Bradby didn't press him on it. You know, for me, if it had been me, I would have said, all right, so are you saying that you didn't ever have a conversation with somebody about the colour uh, of Archie's skin and potentially what it might be? And if you did have that, then how can you say that it wasn't racist. And therefore, yeah. um, you know, these, these, these points were never really pressed home. And some of the things he said about Camilla as well, um, you know, I know that uh, he said that he and William didn't really want their father to marry her. But, you know, that's all water under the bridge now. But for him to say that she was sort of dangerous is an extraordinary thing to say. And he's sort of hinting yeah. still that there was some kind of weird thing that happened to his mother. Yes. Um, I think it is... Very interesting, because I spend a lot of my journalistic life interviewing well-known people, right? Whenever I knew them even a little bit, I felt inhibited. Mm. It's quite difficult, because some, there's something inside you that wants to protect them. So he should never have done it. No, um, He couldn't cope with it. He couldn't actually be strong when Harry was there. I can understand it's difficult, but then you shouldn't do it. This is a very, very important interview. Yeah. But and I've the done. I'm similarly. With a second and a third question mm. is absolutely not being a journalist. It's exactly. being a sort of listener, a yeah. kind friend. Exactly. But also, I mean, I'm, I'm like you. I've done similar things. But I've always, if I, if it's anyone that I know, and in particular if it's somebody I know well, I always say beforehand, look, I'm going to ask you some things you might not like. But you know that they're not coming from a bad place. You know that they're not coming from uh, any kind of feelings of malice. I just want you to answer these questions because my audience will expect you to do exactly that. I mean, I had Piers Morgan in here um, uh, when, he, when his book came out and we had a right old Barney, but because we know each other, it was fine. You know, he didn't mind. He's robust enough to be able to answer the question. But Harry obviously isn't. Harry clearly only wants to talk to people who are going to be sympathetic towards him. But he wants to shut, that's why he wants to shut up the press. He only wants the press who's going to say nice things. But actually, Tom Bradbury did send through a list of his questions, which is always a disaster. Yes, you should never and do that. And he obviously um, couldn't ask anything that was out of this. He might be frightened that Harry would get up and walk out. Mm. I mean, Harry is not somebody, I can't imagine how he's become so ridiculous, actually. Mm. Uh, he doesn't know what he's saying. He changes his mind all the time. He's a very ill man. Yes, I mean, I'm wondering, as, well, as many people are currently wondering, whether all the drugs he's taken have taken some toll yes. on him. You know, all the weed that he smoked, all the mushrooms that he took, all the hallucinogenics and psychedelics that he's been taking, you know, it might have fried his brain. Yes, I, I think that's absolutely right. I think that's why he actually has said in the book that he weed his pants an mm. hour before he met Megan. Mm. Can you imagine anybody with... I missed that particular anything. jewel of information, but thank you for sharing it with me. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, there's so much. It's like I was likening it at the weekend to somebody following you around at a party that you don't know very well, continually telling you things about themselves that you didn't ask them. I don't care about most of what he's telling me. I'm not interested, you know, about how he felt. I don't really care about whether he's circumcised or not, or whether his brother is, or whether, you know, uh, he wet and himself. how he lost his virginity. Yeah, I really don't want to know about that. It's yeah, just horrendous. But, I mean, the other thing that, 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 that Bradby didn't seem to pick up on much either, um, and we now know that Anjum Chowdhury, the 
horrendous um, Islamic uh, preacher has now called uh, for the Duke of Sussex um, to be somehow punished for what he did in Afghanistan. Um, it's not quite put a jihad on him, but he's, you know, he hasn't quite put a fatwa on him, but he's called on jihadis to retaliate against Prince Harry. Um, and Harry is now, despite all of his protestations about wanting to keep his family safe, has actually put them in danger. Yes, he has. Well, some people have said that this is a trick to get the Home Office to actually give him uh, protection 24-7 so that he doesn't have to think about it again. But I don't know as much. I think he's actually screwed on this. It's inexcusable. Mm. And not only has he done it for himself, he's done it for veterans, he's done it for other people in the army, he's done it for his whole family. It's a big worry for the coronation. And he is always right. He's perfect. He knows... Um, He knows how to control the royal family, who's doing what wrong. He wants to control the press in this part, the fact that this is a free country. He just thinks he's incredibly clever at the same time, having terrible um, feelings about his own status. It's it's um, he needs help. Yes, he really does. Camilla, which I haven't said to to you. I mean, it is absolutely cruel and nonsensical. I mean, as you know, I did her biography and came out recently. But she's just not that sort of woman. She is not manipulative. No, she's very down to earth. Rebellion. Um, And actually to say that about her and said, you know, he what was the word? He sacrificed me. Mm. For her personal PR on her personal PR altar. Yeah. What does that mean? I know. You know, she tried to be kind and nice. She didn't want to be um, stand in for Diana. They waited years after Diana died so that the children would get used to them. And she was very caring, but not too involved, yeah. which is just right for a stepmother. So, um, what it all comes down um, to in the end, uh, unfortunately, Angela, is money. Um, he seems to be. Uh, under the impression he's the only man who's ever married somebody that the rest of his family didn't like very much, you know, because that happens every single day of the week. You know, many people marry a woman uh, who then doesn't get along with the rest of their family and it becomes a problem. Well, guess what? That's what's going on here. And you can't really blame them for not liking her. She doesn't seem very likeable. No. Um, Yes, he was very cross that because she was American and she was divorced and she was biracial, they were very nasty to her. No, it's not. It's because she's not a very nice person. She's very destructive. And actually, in some of the sentences that I have read so far, um, that she actually, you can hear her voice there remember she when they went on a um, engagement abroad she found it disgusting that she wasn't getting paid extra Mm. for this and then harry is saying when he was thrown out of the royal family they didn't give him compensation well that doesn't you know his father carried on giving him money but this is a megan comment i'm quite sure and all they want is to take, take, take. They're not grateful for anything whatsoever. No. Well, I don't I, think he could come ever again to no. this country. I, I, I think, think, I think he's done. And, no. And think, you know, I have known him. I was very fond of him. Spent a, over a year with him. And I, and I, and I think, well, you know, he's, he's not very well. He's had a hard time. Let bygones be bygones. But this has been so insulting to everybody. And such a... Uh, so many lies there. Uh, and it's you just dreadful, yeah. Gobbledygook. You couldn't even understand what he was talking about. Mm. 
Yeah, it's a shocking state of affairs. And Angela, listen, we've got to run, but thank you very much indeed. I'm sure we'll be speaking to you again, because don't worry, he hasn't finished being uh, interviewed yet. He's got another interview going on today uh, around about midday our time in America on Good Morning America. We'll bring you that as and when we can as well, uh, because who knows what he's going to tell them. Might be something completely different. This is Talk TV. Welcome back to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham right here on Talk TV. It's a glorious Monday morning. Well, I say glorious, but it's quite chilly. Uh, Bluish sky. Uh, Very nice if you're out and about. Uh, Still not that many cars around this morning in London, so I can only assume that many people are still not bothering to work on a Monday, or at least not bothering to go anywhere to work on a Monday. Uh, I'm sure you're very, very busy working from home. Uh, But if you are working from home, welcome to the show. Uh, And just as long as you're watching it, as long as you're tuning in somewhere, don't forget, if you are watching, you can also listen if you go out in the car uh, on talk radio. Uh, But on TV, we're on Sky 522, Virgin 606, Freeview. Uh, 237 and free sat 217. Now, uh, we're going to be talking to a great many people throughout the course of the day. We're talking cost of living, the rising price of energy, the increased standing charges, of course, plus the whole Prince Harry debacle. Because don't forget, uh, he's doing yet another interview in about an hour's time, this time on Good Morning America. Uh, so we'll bring you that when we can. But for those of you who've been complaining about the fact that all we do is talk about that boring air and the spare story. Uh, well, I've got some good news for you. Peter Hitchens is here um, and he doesn't want to talk about it at all. <laughs> so we'll have a little respite for you uh, over the next uh, half an hour. We'll talk about a great many other things instead. Uh, Dave says this, he's slagged his father's wife and his brother's wife. He thinks he'd come back. He has serious issues. His wife has simply made him very unhappy. P.S. He's 38. All this self-pity and he's moaning and he's nearly 40, not 17, uh, like he comes over as. Well, that's another story altogether. Peter Hitchens is here. Very nice to see you, Peter. Welcome. Well, good to see you. Feel too. like I haven't seen you for ages because we, we haven't. We sort of missed each other, we haven't missed, we? We yeah, missed each other just before Christmas. Yes, and, and um, I, I was here for Kevin last week. Yes, so, so yes, yeah, I saw that. A, has been a while. It has been a while, but not much has changed, funnily enough. No, not much. We've uh, still got national strikes looming. Yeah, um, I think though the government's uh, belief that they could get public support by uh, by having sort of who governs Britain mm. confrontation with the unions is waning a bit. You get the sense that they may realise that this isn't getting the popularity with the. No. red wall which they thought it would mm. and since everything in the government policy is now driven by an attempt to re- rescue themselves from the collapse in popularity following the, the trust debacle yes. I think that they may well shift on that although you know what's interesting though is that it's not just the trust debacle as well as well because I'm seeing Trevor Cavanaugh this morning writing in the sun about the, the sort of the ghost of Boris Johnson looming large and certain people thinking he might come back I just don't see it I mean we speak to an awful lot of people and even formerly sort of die-hard Boris Johnson fans, are not that keen on his return. I would point. have thought that unless Rishi Sunak does something really catastrophically mm. stupid, uh, it's going to be very, very hard to get to get far with that. Yeah. Uh, he has. He did make a lot of enemies, and his, his mode of government, which is basically founded on the rules set by the Corleone family, yes. the godfather, uh, was that anybody who got in your way was 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 pretty much dealt with, snuffed and, and, out, and, and, and frightened into silence. Yeah. But once you cease to be prime minister, your enemies can then pop up again yes. and, and and start fighting against you. So without the power of Downing Street, mm. I don't know whether he could do it again anyway. And another, I just don't think another putch in the Conservative no. Party. And also, I surely that no. would ultimately. Would not just destroy them in the next election. Yeah, that would do them in altogether. I know a lot of people, including me, wouldn't necessarily see it as a bad thing. Mm. But from their own point of view, they surely won't, don't want to do that. No, I don't think they do. And I think also there are those in the media, perhaps, who who, who give a bit more credence to Boris Johnson than the people do. I think most people, as I say, even those who who would have voted for him and would hope 
that he would have been a good prime minister have seen that he's actually not very good at being prime minister. Well, and yet and yet, you see, the, the, it's a few years ago we have sat here and said, Johnson, prime minister, don't be ridiculous. Yeah, and he became prime minister. He did. So, but you can't uh, on the fool... simple basis of never say never and don't rule anything out. True. Not, don't, don't don't say it will never happen. Just that it's unlikely. It'll suit me. I think so. Um, also, I'll tell you what else is unlikely is Rishi Sunak doing something um, really, really dramatically disastrous because I think that's not in his DNA. I mean, everything he does is with immense caution, which I think is probably a bad thing because I think if you're a leader, you need to take chances every now and again, don't you? Well, I'm not sure what it is that he believes in, if anything no. at all. That's the problem. No. He came out with this, this totally unmemorable declaration of principles last week. Yes. The only thing anyone can remember about it is some plan to make us all do maths until, right. we, until we die. Which, curiously, wasn't in the five-point plan. No. I no. mean, even though it was the most important it's, thing it's of the all. Thing. These <laughs> days, with a speech is, is leaked, and then it's made, and then it's briefed. Yes. So there are at least three versions of it come out. And it was the, the, the thing about the, the maths, which is so stuck in my mind. And it's, it's completely ridiculous. Yes. Well, I also, many people uh, from, from all shades of, of the, the, the political spectrum have said to me, What's he to, why does he want people to do maths? I mean, most people, when they, if they're doing maths at sort of beyond GCSE level, are pretty good at it, right? Maths beyond GCSE level is quite complicated. It is complicated. I've seen my son's um, you know, maths uh, GCSE paper. And I couldn't do it. I wouldn't have been able to. And well, I was quite good at maths. Well, they've written it so that you can't do it, I think. Mm. But we'll come to that. But the, the thing is that maths is sort of funky, isn't it? It's all to do with coding yeah. and the new world of high technology right. and everything being taken over by computers. And so maths must be modern mm. and good and clean. And if you associate, associate yourself with it, you look trendy and forward-looking and progressive and, and clever, and efficient and clever. Mm. But in fact, the, the real problem with maths in this country is that it's not taught properly to young children. Mm. Uh, the old things we used to have to do, you probably used to have to do it, the chanting of times tables, yeah. the relentless yeah. uh, doing Brilliant. again and again and again of simple sums until you could do them in your sleep. I could still do, you know, 11 times whatever because, because I used to chant it. Exactly, and that's the only reason you can do it. It's yeah. probably one of the most important things you learned at school. Yeah. As well. But it's not done anymore. Right. I, I don't know when this came to you, but it, I just escaped it. They introduced something in, in, my, uh, in my school when I was about 12 called Nuffield Maths, mm. which stop, was stopped being about sums and yeah. multiplication and division. It was all about Venn diagrams and, yeah. and, and pretty pictures and colourful pamphlets. And the poor people who came into studying maths after that, I think, have, have been left with the legacy of not knowing mm. I mean, how I remember, to do anything simple. I remember log tables. We had a book full of log tables, yeah. and I never really understood what that well, was you, about. You, you didn't need to understand it. You just need to understand it. You used a book. Uh, <laughs> the, the, the logs, cosines, and sines. Yeah. And all, you, you, as long, once you understood how to use a book, it didn't matter. It was right. a way of doing fantastically huge uh, multiplication by addition, right. as, I, as I remember it. Uh, and some people could also master slide rules, which were a great. I could never do that. Thing of the time. No, I used to hit people with it. It always looked it looked it looked so clever when mm. you, you know, when an economist would get out a slide rule yeah. on television. You go, Gosh, this guy really must right. know what he's doing. Absolutely, he says we're going to get inflation of ninety percent. We will, of course. They didn't know any more than anybody else. No. But the other thing we all had uh, in in my generation, which I suspect you largely missed, was that we had huge exercises in mental arithmetic all mm -hmm. the time from the coinage. Yes. 
and from the weights and measures that we also, I, I, I learnt all the... No, I remember feeling distinctly cheated, in fact, in 1971, when I think I was in my first year at um, secondary school, uh, because the, the, dis- the decimal system came in. And I went, hang on a minute, I've just learnt the entire sort of pound, shillings and pence yeah, system. geodecimals uh, and 16 yeah, ounces all of a that. pound. Farthings, you know, 14 guineas. 14 pounds and a stone. And right. All, yeah. And I, I still really, I, I kind of missed out on furlongs and all of that kind of thing. So the distance thing is still a mystery to me, really. A furlong is very, use- very useful, uh, particularly for... There's eight people, chains people in a furlong, racing. is it? Uh, they're, they're, hang on, there are, t- there are 22 yards in a, in a chain. <laughs> <laughs> this is what I mean. I mean, you know, I can't remember. Ten, I just ten, remember there's a chain. Ten, ten chains in a furlong. There are eight furlongs in a mile. And interestingly enough, five furlongs in a kilometre. Yes. So and if only, anybody puts a kilometre in, in some official document, I yeah. change it to five furlongs. Oh, that's good. Because any time I ever hear the word furlong, of course, is, is racing. racing, horse yeah. racing. Well, it's so still very much used. Still they, very much They, the they also use chains on the railways. If yeah. you look on railway bridges, all the measurements... Of, uh, of of actual railway track is still done in chains, right. miles okay. and chains. Well, I somehow missed out on all of that, but I did learn the, the you know pounds, shillings, and pence, and all of that. So I, I still know all that. Yeah, when you had to do it all the time, mm. you would know, if you just wanted to buy a quarter of toffees, yeah. a quarter of a pound, yeah. so you, you you and the, the price of a pound would be such and such. You would have to do mental arithmetic in mm. shillings and in, in shillings and pence. Yeah, uh, to do it. Yeah, and you got very quick and fast at it. And you still see this in some some shops you go into. Some of the people can still do it. They, I've I've been in shops where I, I pick something up off the shelf, and they they reckon I'm going to give them pound coin for it, and they've mm. got the change ready in their hands before I give them the pound. Yeah. they're that fast. Yes, and that used to be completely commonplace. Yeah, it's not. No, now most people won't know how to add anything up on the till unless they put it into the machine. Well, there's there's two explanations for getting too little change. Yeah, but there's only one explanation for getting too much change. Yes. And I, and, and I, I find that quite often you're offered too much change, and it's a sign that people just can't do it anymore. It's not their fault; mm. it's just they were not properly taught. And you could you could keep them at school till to say till 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 they till they die, mm. certainly till they were able to vote. And the the way we teach maths now, revolutionised as it was in the 1960s, will not teach them. And this lesson, like the old, the basic lesson of how to teach people to read, mm. uh, is and, and teaching people proper history has not been learned. Politicians keep standing up and saying we're going to fix this. Mm. But they can't fix it because they, basically they've, they've given the country the wrong kind of schools. Yes. And the, the, but sc- also the schools rather, are all about propaganda. Yeah. They're, not, they're not about knowledge. No, true. And also rather like the five-point plan, the mathematics suggestion didn't really have any sort of flesh on the bones. He well, didn't say what he was going to teach people. He didn't understand what it was that they might want to learn at that age. And then similarly, when he talks about you know reducing the NHS waiting time, he didn't say how. Uh, when he talks about stopping yeah. the illegal migrant boats coming, he didn't really explain what was going to happen. It's as if there's a room somewhere in Downing Street full of brightly coloured levers. You know, fix mathematics. Yes. Pull that one. Fix the NHS. Pull yeah. that one. You pull the lever, yeah. nothing happens. No. Because they, I was don't, they, they, they don't have a clue how to do it. I mean, for instance, there's a very serious argument to be had in this country about whether we should adopt the French system of health insurance. Yes. And healthcare. Yeah, I personally think we could pretty much take it on as as a whole, just copy it. Yes, uh, and we would then transform for the for the same expenditure our health service from one which doesn't work into mm. one which works. Yeah, and people could could actually d- discover the joys of a properly mm. run state backs, but not states. Uh, but, but not instead state of which, we're led to believe system. by the unions involved that if we give them more money, then that will fix it. But this has been proven which to be untrue. It's over and over again we give them more money. And the other great disaster, of course, was the the, the Blair belief that by by going for the, the private finance initiative, yeah. which loaded so many major hospitals with debts for decades mm. to come, 
uh, we would solve the problem. Of course, it created a lot of very flashy new uh, hospitals, mm. which were splendid in themselves, but it created debts which made it impossible for them to run properly. Yes. We have just done it so badly. Yeah. And the things are not debated. But isn't the problem and effectively, and I'm, I'm going to give you some time to answer this because yeah. I'm going to stop in a minute, isn't the problem effectively the fact that simply there are too many people now accessing the NHS, too many of them are living too long, and there simply isn't enough money to cover it all? I believe so. I think exactly the same problems face the French Health Service, uh, which has France has pretty much the same population and mm. a similar tax base to us, and yet they manage it much better. Mm. Organisation can make a big difference. And oddly enough, it seems that the insurance-based uh, insurance system which they use works better than yeah. the one which we use. And you, you look at Jeremy Clark's amazing columns in, in Low Life and The Spectator, he's, he's very seriously ill, mm. and, and, but he's being treated in the French system. Yeah. And the contrast between the sort of treatment he gets and the sort you would get in similar circumstances yeah. in Britain is astonishing to read. Mm. And I think you, you hear whenever I talk to people who live in France about this, they say, I would never ever fall in Britain if I could possibly avoid it. I would come back to yeah. France to be ill because the treatment is so much better. And I really don't see why we don't consider this in more detail. But you never hear it studied. Any suggestions always, oh, well, if you want to get rid of the NHS, what you want is the American system. Mm. But I don't. Well, no. I, I, Nobody I mean, wants to be, Well, we'll come back to that because uh, we're going to take a little break. Peter Hitchens is here. Uh, we're talking about the NHS, but we will talk about other things as well. Coming up uh, after this on Talk TV. Talk Radio. Listen. Digest. Repeat. Understand. Accept no substitutes. Talk Radio. On your mobile. On your wavelength. Talk Radio and Talk TV. Welcome back to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham right here on Talk TV. I was just talking to Peter Hitchens about his new um, uh, renovated building, but uh, we'll come back to that, I'm sure. Talking of, um, of, of all things to do with the NHS, there's a vote, I believe, this afternoon, or a ballot of some kind, to see whether junior doctors are going to go out on strike. I think if they, you were saying there's not much uh, thirst in this country for a government that wants to take on the unions in a kind of battle yeah. royale, if you like. But I don't think there's much thirst for support for the strikers either. Well, especially not for people who have direct medical responsibilities. Mm. I, no, I absolutely believe, uh, for, for, for both for, for strong moral and practical reasons, that people who are nurses, doctors or uh, paramedics should not strike. No. I don't say they should be banned from striking. I think they should, it should be plain to them that they should not strike. Mm. And in return, the nation has to recognise that they don't have the freedom to withdraw their labour and has to treat them better. Uh, and I think it's very, very sad that we should have got ourselves into a position where it should even be discussed that doctors should strike. I don't know how anybody who is a doctor who's, who's devoted his or her entire training mm. uh, to, to mercy to other people, to the relief of pain and suffering, could ever say, uh, I won't treat you. There is no form of medical treatment, you know, some of them which you may, may seem trivial compared with the major operation, mm. uh, which does not offer mercy and help to people. The basic act of seeing a patient of reassuring them mm. with your skills that the, 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 the what they've got is treatable, for instance, is the start of most cures. People yeah. leave a, a, a doctor's appointment feeling better than they went in. How can you withdraw that yeah. from people morally? Yes. It's not possible. And, and how can any government uh, be so foolish as to allow the, the pay and conditions of, of doctors and nurses and paramedics to get so bad yeah. that they find themselves with leaders who are prepared to do this? I, I'm, I'm, and the other thing is, how do they find these leaders? I, I'd, I'd have to say, I reckon, if I led a, a group 
as popular as the nurses, and I couldn't think of a way of getting them a decent in, improvement mm. in paying conditions without going on strike. I'd look for another job. Yeah. Striking is an yes. absolute last resort. It's and a while very you say blunt this, instrument. Too. Right. And while you say this, it reminds me, I think I might not have seen you since I saw you on Question Time. Which yeah. was presumably in sometime in December. It was um, because you were with Pat Cullen, who rather ludicrously, after you said all that, um, accused you of some kind of misogyny. Oh, I know, um, it was absurd. Which seemed ludicrous. To well, me. I thought it was very. I thought poor. you dealt with it very well, though. I thought it was very poor. I thought I didn't. My opinion offered fell quite considerably during that exchange. I yes. thought this is not proper argument. She should do better, be able to do better than that. I, yeah. was, I was giving her perfectly rational criticisms and yes. also pointing out something which I will point out again because it's not much covered. The ballots for the nurses' strike were mm. not undertaken in, in a single ballot across no. the country, but hospital by hospital. Yeah. And the reason for that is simple. The leadership of the Royal College of Nursing were not confident that their members fully support the strike mm. and they didn't want to risk a, a, a national ballot which they might lose. Yes. And I think anybody looking at this must be aware of the fact that support among, among nurses for the reasons I've just discussed mm. for an actual strike is, is obviously naturally thin. I mean, you hear stories of, of course. nurses going out on the picket line in the morning shouting a few slogans and then hurrying into work. Yeah. Well, there's no question that an awful lot of the people here on the picket lines are not nurses at all. Well, that, many, many of them are not even in the Royal College of Nursing. They're sort of ancillary um, uh, sympathisers, if you like, but they don't want to identify who they are because, secondly, uh, because that might be called secondary picketing. Um, also, an awful lot of nurses didn't vote to strike, and an awful lot of nurses are not actively striking. No, it's interesting. When we did question time, it was down in Winchester, and yeah. in Winchester the hospital was not on strike right. that day because they had not voted for it. Mm. Yeah, I mean, it's a fascinating situation, and I think if the junior doctors do vote to strike, and if they do actually do what they're threatening to do, I think that would be a massive error on their part, so because I think the NHS is already useless, and my, one of the points I made when the Royal College of Nursing and indeed the ambulance drivers and the paramedics went on strike, was actually it wasn't any worse because it can't get any worse. You couldn't get an ambulance before they went on strike, so you couldn't get well, one when they went on strike. You won't be able to tell, but I remember when I was an industrial correspondent many years ago being reassured by my friends in the unions that an ambulance worker strike would not mean a, a, a deterioration in the emergency mm. service. And a few days after that, I was out on actually in the Finchley Road in North London, and yeah. I witnessed a traffic accident. Right. It was before the days of mobile phones. Mm. I heard the crunch mm. of the of the of the vehicle going into somebody's bones right. crossing the road, and I was the one who got to the telephone first. And I, I dialed nine 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 after and they said it'll be ages, mate, right. uh, because of the strike. And yeah. then at that point, the scales fell from my eyes. Yeah. The the, reass the assurances that I had from my union friends mm. it would be okay yeah. were empty. They couldn't do it. Fortunately, I, I, the, my own GP was ju was just around the corner. I went and banged on his door, and right. he came out and did what he could for the for the person right. who who'd had her, her leg broken mm. by by a car. But it was horrible. Yeah, I bet you can't do it. You can't do that. And so I've always been completely against it ever yeah. since. And speaking of the NHS, I guess we should finish up with um, you wrote a piece last week about the mask scenario. Yes, indeed. Once again, it was astonishing to see how eager some forces uh, of nature were in this world who wanted masks to be brought back. It would appear, because we spoke to our statistician friend, Jamie Jenkins, last week, and he said it looks as though the, the latest sort of panic about COVID has peaked, and in fact most of the cases uh, are now going down. Um, but it wasn't it amazing how quickly people wanted to bring masks back? Yes, and how quickly some people wanted to wear them mm. again. I mean, I saw it on the on the tube this morning of people doing it again. Yeah. And it, there is there are two things: there are people, there are authoritarians who desire the obedience of people, and also there are r remarkable and alarming numbers of people who wish to obey. Which is one of the reasons I say, look, if you want to wear one of these things, it's absolutely your affair. Mm. I, 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 I will never reprove you or criticise you for doing it. That's what you want to do. If you think it, if you think it's a good idea, please do it. But do not put pressure on anybody else. Mm. 
uh, to do the same thing. Uh, do me the same favor. You're free to do it. I'm free not to do it. Yes, exactly right. And it's, and it's not. It remains the case that the whole frenzy for, for, for wearing masks didn't come from science or medical knowledge. It came from political pressure. Yeah, and it remains a sort of political football because Mark Harper, who had been quite anti-mask and anti-COVID restrictions when he was on the back benches, who now is in government, when he was asked last week, would you wear a mask um, in public, he said that it would be sensible to do so um, if you were um, suffering from anything. Well, apparently, um, I, I saw that when, when Johnson was, was doubtful about wearing a mask during during the Great Panic, mm. they kept showing him pictures of other world leaders wearing masks, yeah. saying, "You're the only one who's not doing right. it." You must, it's conformism, right? They didn't well, say it is. they didn't come up with a with a a, a, a randomized controlled trial, yeah. uh, which showed that the the evidence absolutely yeah. uh, absolutely demanded it. They they said, "Here, look, lots of other people mm. are doing it." Well, Join I always in. quote from my interview with a guy called Chris Philp, who at the time was the Justice Minister, oh, yeah. because I put it to him that despite the fact that London Underground and uh, uh, TFL were actually saying it was a legal requirement to wear a mask, I said, "I don't think it is. Do you believe it to be a legal requirement?" And he wasn't sure. And then he said it was the right thing to do to wear a mask. And I said, well, what does that even mean? And he said, well, it's, it's the right thing to do. And he couldn't really explain it. He just kept parroting this kind of phrase that it was the right thing to do. And I said, well, if I don't wear one, am I doing something terribly wrong? And he didn't know how to answer that either. No, it is, it's all very, very strange. Very odd. It's, it's left the country after the, after the whole experience. It's left the country less free yes. than it was before. I, I think so. But luckily, uh, there are still some, some of us who have some sense left. But anyway, Peter, good to see you. Thank you very and much you indeed. Uh, Peter Hitchens back, of course, next Monday as well. Lots more for us to talk about. Loads of you want to talk to me. Uh, we'll come to you. We'll get to you. Uh, this is Talk TV. On the app, on your mobile, Talk Radio and Talk TV. Welcome back to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham right here on Talk TV. Don't forget Piers Morgan is back tonight and he's going to have his say uh, on the Prince Harry interview tonight on Talk TV. Uh, it's going to be pretty explosive. Because don't forget, uh, one of the reasons that uh, Piers Morgan left the Good Morning Britain programme at ITV in general uh, was because of some things that he said about Meghan Markle. And it would now appear from what um, Prince Harry has been saying that actually maybe he was right all along. Wouldn't that be extraordinary, eh? So Piers Morgan tonight, Piers Morgan Uncensored from 8 on Sky Channel 522, Freeview 237, Virgin 606, or of course you can download the Talk TV app and that will be one not to be missed. Now coming up, uh, we've got lots to do. We're going to talk to Mark Bukowski about the image that uh, Prince Harry is now giving out and exactly what he's actually doing. But we're going to take another slight detour away from Prince Harry right now. We're going to talk to Mark Littlewood, uh, who is Director General of the Institute, of course, of Economic Affairs. Mark, a very, very good morning to you. Good morning, Mike. Good to be with you. Thank you very much indeed for joining us. Now, a few things to talk about. Um, the economy, as we like to say, stupid, uh, is still very much the uh, the main order of business, isn't it? You know, Rishi Sunak interviewed yesterday um, by Laura Kunzberg. Didn't really offer much in the way of... Uh, helping people with the cost of living crisis, which we're being told is actually going to get worse in the next few weeks uh, before it gets any better. Things are definitely going to get worse before they get better, Mike. I mean, we obviously heard from Rishi Sunak a few days ago about his five pledges or his five commitments that he wants to be judged by. And one of those is growth returning to the economy. Well, that's not going to happen anytime soon. It will happen because we've been flatlining or going backwards for so long yeah. that eventually we'll get a tick up. I don't know exactly when, possibly the start of 2024. 
But I think you can fairly imagine that the economy will be going backwards in aggregate across 2023, mm. which basically means for your viewers and listeners, brace yourself, times I'm afraid are going to get tougher over 2023, most likely not easier for most Well, of exactly us. right. And they still seem to think that they can continue to put the squeeze on people. They're talking about putting up the standing charge of, of electricity once more to save um, the blushes of a company that went bust. I'm absolutely baffled as to why they would do that. And secondly, the fuel tax duty uh, that they're thinking of putting on sometime in the spring as well. I mean, you were famously very much a backer of the Liz Trust plan. And I mean, you know, surely this is not the way to make growth happen, is it? Yes, it's sort of, uh, it's as if there's just emergency triage, mm. really, coming from, from the, the government. Uh, I mean, in fairness, both to Rishi Sunak and to the, 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 the short-lived Liz Trust regime, we, we've inherited an energy market that is barely deserves to be called a market. Yeah. I mean, the energy business in this country is so heavily regulated, and then, as you pointed out, Mike, bailed out if there's a failure. That brings about what economists call moral hazard. If you think you're going to be bailed out, well, you, you don't keep on your toes as much. I think in order to sort out the energy issue over the long term, it might be that there need to be subventions in the short term to help people with people's bills. And of course, there are those uh, interventions. But over the long run, we've got to get back to an energy market that's actually a market. Mm. And we've got to exploit the energy resources that we have here in the UK. I think that means uh, more licenses in the North Sea. Definitely means going for shale gas. But it also means when an energy company goes pop, it's allowed to go pop. It goes bust. It's mm. not bailed out by the government. And that's what we've seen with Bulb, the company that's yeah. gone bust, deemed by the government too big to fail because it had 1.7 million customers. Too big to fail. Do you remember that from the banking crisis? I do. Uh, we've got to allow these companies to fail. That doesn't mean the people's energy will be cut off. It will be picked up by another provider. But it's not a competitive market at the moment. And that leads to all sorts of inefficiencies, worsening what's already a pretty dire problem. Absolutely right. I mean, you wrote this weekend about... Um the Rishi Sunak sort of five-point plan and how, uh, like me, I think most of it probably isn't uh, uh, very workable at all. But but the thing that people don't mention much, and you mentioned in the piece, is the growing population of this country and how that is having a massive effect, really, on everything from the NHS to, to travel, to roads, to housing. You know, we can't just keep increasing the number of people living here, some of them coming from elsewhere, without making the infrastructure better, surely. That's right. Although I, I do point out in a newspaper article um, uh, this morning, Mike, that you'll notice all of the things that can't cope with a growing population are all things that are basically run or controlled by the state, yeah. run or controlled by the government. Yeah. Uh, you very rarely hear Tesco complaining that too many people <laughs> want to buy groceries, for yes. example. It's always the NHS or the education system or the housing system, which is very restricted uh, by the government. But if we are going to have those restrictions, if you think those can't be liberalised, and I, I wish they would be liberalised, but if that doesn't happen, then there are you know, quite clear limits on the number of dependents uh, that you can have. Mm. And it was the great economist Milton Friedman, I think, who pointed out that you can either have open borders or a generous welfare state, but you can't have both. Yeah. And if we're going to have very generous welfare provision, there's only a certain amount that can be afforded. So Rishi Sunak's view on the his pledge to stop the small boats crossing the channel, although that's obviously only one piece of the immigration puzzle. Uh, I, I think we need a much uh, a much bigger overarching strategy on immigration, which, uh, putting aside what you, how you deal with genuine refugees who are fleeing persecution, I'm not really sure that's true of Albanians crossing the channel from mm. Macron 
France, I'm no fan of Macron, but it's, it's a safe haven as, as a country, we need a much better overall view, which basically means you can come into this country, you can join it a bit like joining a club, but we need to expect you to be a net contributor to the country, not a dependent. Yes, and possibly you could even have a period of probation for which you would be judged at the end as to whether or not uh, we like you enough or you have committed no crimes or you have committed no um, heinous acts, so therefore uh, you can mm -hmm. stay. But, I mean, there's, at the moment, it's a kind of free-for-all, isn't it? As long as you can put your feet down on the sand at, uh, at Canberra, you know, you're in, basically. It's as simple as that. And, of course, his plan for stopping the boats is not particularly good either because his plan is to bring some new laws in, in addition to the ones that they're already breaking. So why would they not keep coming? Yeah, I think that's right. And there is a thorny problem, in fairness to the Prime Minister that he faces, is that an awful lot of this is wrapped up in international treaties and yeah. international protocols that were written for a wholly different era. If you go back to the 1950s, where the Refugee Convention came into place, we were in an entirely different state of affairs. To, to move country or move continent would... Pro quite probably mean you wouldn't see your friends, family or loved ones for mm. years, possibly decades. Telecommunications were so poor then that you probably weren't even able to speak to them. We're now in a situation, according to a survey from just a few years ago, that about 10% of the world's population wishes to emigrate if they could, a, a large chunk from sub-Saharan Africa. And that, to my mind, places us in a very, very different scenario in, the, in, in how we handle immigration to the one where all of these rules and regulations were originally conceived. So... If Rishi Sunak's serious, I think he needs to make sure that Britain leads a charge to rather change the way we deal with the with the with the problem and the opportunity of migration because we're stuck in a 1950s legalistic mindset mm. which doesn't really reflect the situation we're facing in the 2020s. No. And of course those who are in support of the small boats coming uh, who for some reason uh, still think that it's a good idea to encourage a criminal element of people who make money out of people trafficking because uh, they think that's the way the world should work. They say oh but we must take our fair share because France takes lots of migrants and, you know, other countries in Europe do as well. Well, I'm sorry, I don't see the logic of that at all. I don't see why we should take our fair share of anything. Yeah, and I think that the other thing which is getting very blurred in the debate about the population of the UK and who comes to these shores is we've stopped distinguishing between economic migrants, somebody who just says, I want to move to the UK, yeah. I want to earn more money and I want to contribute... And, and refugees who uh, might be dependents, but if they are genuinely fleeing persecution from, I don't know, Afghanistan, I mean, we've been generous to Ukrainian citizens, for example, uh, fleeing a war zone there. And I think it's useful to keep those two categories, but they're getting blurred in the middle somewhat. And uh, it's difficult for me to understand how people, as I say, fleeing uh, Emmanuel Macron's France are really fleeing an area that mm. is unsafe and seeking safe haven here. So we've got to have those two different categories. I, I'm quite generous. I think the UK wants to be generous to people who genuinely are fleeing persecution. But if that becomes used by some, uh, if not all, it's definitely not all, but by some people as a way to game the system, just arrive on Dover Beach, put your hand in the air and say, I'm an asylum seeker. Well, then we need a much swifter, faster, more efficient system than the one we've got at the moment, because there are certainly some people claiming that they are fleeing persecution who aren't. And then on the other hand, we've got to look at the economic, economic migrants. And as you say, Mike, you might take a dim view of people with criminal history, for example. But if people want to come over here to genuinely contribute to the UK economy and help us improve our hospitals and our mm. education, our roads and all the rest of it and pay their taxes, well, I'd welcome them with open arms. We, we've still got a lot of Britain we could develop and we do need a labour force to do that. 
But the starting point should be that they're net contributors, not net dependents. And my fear is that immigration is now associated with dependency rather than aspiration and contributing to the UK as a nation and as an economy. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right, Mark. Good to talk to you. Thank you very much indeed. Mark Littlewood, Director General of the Institute of Economic Affairs there, talking about uh, the biggest problem facing the economy. And that is, of course, uh, immigration, because it seems, as he says, the public sector doesn't know how to handle it. 0344 499 1000. We'll take some calls. We're going to talk to Dr Emily Ball as well, a GP uh, based up in Merseyside, because the NHS apparently is ready to be privatised. And it's not Rishi Sunak saying that. It's Sir Keir Starmer. This is Talk TV. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. Talk Radio and Talk TV. Welcome back to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham right here on Talk TV. Just remember the transfer window is open. Don't miss Virgin Radio's brand new signing at Drive. Ricky Wilson, uh, he joins Virgin Radio this afternoon from 4pm. Listen on DAB or download the Virgin app. Uh, and you can do that uh, every single day. Uh, it'll be great fun for you. 0344 499 1000. How about this from Dave? He says, Mr. Graham, I'm sick and tired of you insulting people working from home as lazy. My wife works from home. She works longer hours for no extra pay and she is prevented from returning to her workplace because her employer will not let her and her colleagues return to the office. Not everyone working at home wants to work at home. Stop putting everyone in the same category of being lazy. It's a disgusting attitude from you. Well, Dave, listen, um, I'm sure there are plenty of people who work from home and work very hard. All I'm saying is, is that people who should be at work should not be at home. If your wife is being told she can't return to work, why? Why on earth is she letting the employer tell her that she can't come back to an office if she wants to? Surely she should be able to do that, shouldn't she? And I would support her in that. And if she wants to call me and tell me, I'll get onto the worker, uh, the workforce employer and get him to open up the office because it's nonsensical if you have an office not to be going to it. It makes no sense to me. And I'm certainly not having to go at everybody who works from home. I just think the working from home principle is a bad one. I think it's wrong, I think it's bad for the economy, and I think it's bad for the human race. And I'm never going to change that view. You can have a different view, and I'm certainly not saying that your wife uh, is amongst those who are swinging the lead. I would never suggest such a thing, but there are plenty of people who are. Let's face it. Let's talk to Dr Emily Ball, who's a GP, uh, based up in Merseyside, because a few NHS stories today. Keir Starmer uh, says he now thinks privatising bits of the NHS in order to push down waiting lists is a good idea. So for all of those Labourites who say the Tories are always trying to privatise it, well, here's the leader of the Labour Party saying he thinks he maybe should privatise bits of it as well. Also, a big story coming up later on today, which we'll cover, uh, a ballot of junior doctors, which could result in a 72-hour strike over pay. That's according to the British Medical Association. Uh, Dr Emily, very good morning to you. Good morning. Thanks very much indeed for joining us. Um, the junior doctors um, are going to possibly join the uh, the nurses and, and some of the paramedics who've been going out on strike. I think this will be perhaps, for an awful lot of people, a bit of a step too far maybe for the NHS, won't it? Um, I think I think that that is uh, really an issue that the junior doctors themselves should should speak to. I'm a GP, so my opinion actually isn't really relevant, save to say that uh, having been a junior doctor, I would uh, lend my junior colleagues my support. But I think for the rights and wrongs and why they're doing it, that, that message really needs to come from the BMA. Yeah, it does. But I mean, the BMA are all in favour of striking doctors, aren't they? But I don't know that the public are. Well, that's my point, I suppose. You're, um, you're allowed to have an opinion on it if you want, you know. 
Well, I don't think the BMA have been uh, in favour of striking doctors. I think the, the BMA actually uh, uh, of recent years has been remarkably toothless and extremely poor at representing its um, its members. So uh, I think that the, the ins and outs of it are very complex. And um, whilst I could offer an opinion, I don't think it would be relevant because I, I simply don't understand enough about exactly what it's like being a junior doctor. I am unfortunately well past the age where I... <laughs> I would be considered yeah. I mean, it is it is a very difficult job, isn't it? And I mean, you can talk to us a bit about what it was like when you were doing it, because what, what we hear about junior doctors is that they work incredibly long hours, uh, sometimes ludicrously long hours, in which t- at which point sometimes they even make mistakes as a result of that. Um, but it's always been like that. And so presumably um, pres- when you sign up to be a junior doctor, you kind of know that you have to do that for a little while and then you move on to do something else. Well, I think uh, I'm not sure it's it's quite that simple. I, there nothing is, is ever as simple as I make it out to be. Well, nothing <laughs> in life is ever simple, is it? And um, I think, uh, yeah, I, I think there is an, an understanding that people will work long hours, but I think it, it's um, more about safety. Actually, is it safe to have people working those hours? Mm. Because you know, we all know what it's like if you have to do a long car journey and you're, you know, you're, you're focusing on that and how rapidly people become tired. But these are people's lives that you're dealing mm. with. And um, one of the big problems that we have within the NHS is recruitment and retention in that people are just wanting to go. And unfortunately, uh, that then puts pressure on the remaining doctors that are left. So I think it's I think it's altogether more complex mm. than simply being about hours worked. Yes. Um, no, I'm, and, sure, and I'm sure that's true. I mean, I, I, I think that the, the hours worked, unfortunately, is also just continuing up through the grades. So, as I say, for, for, for you to get a proper balanced view on that, I think you would probably need to speak to one of them. Um, but, I, I, you know, I, I think it's um, I, I think something needs to be done to support the NHS workforce and junior doctors are a yeah. hugely valuable part. of that. I mean, we talk about the NHS pretty much every day on this show. We have people ringing in with stories of... Of, of sometimes good news and quite often bad news. It seems to me the NHS is not very well run. And I know it's fashionable uh, if you're in the NHS to blame the government for everything, but doesn't the NHS itself actually have to own up to some mistakes being made and some um, bad management and some things that could be made better, not necessarily by having more money thrown at them, but just by being better organised? Yeah, I think... <laughs> Well, there are a number of things. One has been the uh, splitting up of the NHS into more regional uh, trusts and and, uh, now ICSs. And whilst that is good on one side, because you you get um, a a service that is specifically aimed at the demographic that you're serving, and of course there's a huge difference between serving a demographic in a university town versus serving a demographic that is predominantly over 65. So I think that side of, of devolving things down has been quite useful. However, unfortunately, it doesn't help um, with joined up care. It doesn't help when you look at sharing uh, resources across areas because everything becomes quite siloed. So I, I think I don't think anybody would argue that the NHS is perfect. I, I don't think that, that that would remotely fly. No. Um, but I think the problems that the NHS have aren't just about management and actually aren't predominantly about management. The problems are that people have had to cut corners year on year on year on year to stay under budget. 
And that doesn't always drive the best decisions for patients. And often there are unintended consequences down the line. So I know what you mean about um, are the reforms needed. And of course, the reforms needed, you know, no system is ever perfect. It's constantly changing that we know that the demographic is changing of, of our, our population. We know that our population is growing. So obviously, it needs to be a constant work in, uh, in progress. Nobody's arguing with that. But I think the fundamental problems uh, regarding the NHS are are down to repeated cuts, cuts in beds, cuts in, in funding to very important service. Mental health, for example, has been horrifically uh, attacked in terms of cuts. But why, over but the why years. then does the NHS allow these cuts to be made when they've got so much of a surfeit of money in other areas of the budget? For example, non-medical areas where they hire loads of people for doing jobs which have got nothing to do with frontline medicine. You know, the budget for the NHS is massive, right? And it's actually got bigger, not smaller. But maybe some cuts that have been made have been made in the wrong places and some money has been allocated in the wrong way. So surely the NHS people who run the NHS should protect it, shouldn't they? Well, I mean, I think in those terms, that's probably a question for NHS England. Um, but well, I I'm think, asking you, um, though. Well, yeah, you're a doctor. you can ask me, but yeah, I won't know all the details. Well, all right, let me put it to you this way, Dr Emily. If you wanted more money for your GP surgery and you found out that you couldn't get that money because there wasn't any, but then you found out that the NHS had spent a couple of million quid on something that they didn't really need to spend it on, you'd probably be quite upset about that, wouldn't you? Well, I mean, my, my budget is fixed, unfortunately, uh, very, very sadly. Um, so I think, yes, I understand what you're saying. But I, I think in the grand scheme of things, this notion that the NHS budget is is greater in real terms just actually isn't true. It, it has been cut repeatedly uh, and it does mean... No, that they've had more money this year and last year than they've ever had. It's as simple as that. You can argue that the inflation has taken that away, but it's still more money. Well, yes, but if it's not in line with inflation, then it's a cut. No, it isn't. That's only in Labour politics that that actually makes sense. Because if you actually add money up and you've got more than you had last year, then you've got more money. But not when you need to purchase things with it. Well, I've I've always believed the NHS doesn't purchase things properly either. But the NHS is a monopoly, right? On, on any plan of business, if you are as big as the NHS is, you should be dictating to companies what you buy and how much you're going to pay for it. You shouldn't be letting uh, them tell you. No, and, and I think I think you're, you're right. That, that is something that we have failed to, to look at, is the monopoly. Continually, for decades. I'm not disagreeing with it, but unfortunately, those of us on the front line don't have the option to do anything about that. That's up to NHS England and, and management. Yes, well, you've just told me that, you know, they, it's, it's, it's down to funding, but it's not. It's down to NHS England and management. Finally, we agree. Well, I'm not sure we do, because I do think it's also down to funding. I'm not dis- I'm not. But they've got more money. We've just agreed. A, a part well, in it. Yeah, but we've just agreed that we've got more money and you've just agreed that it's NHS England's fault. So I think we have agreed. I haven't agreed that we've got more money because I, I, it's not in line with <laughs> All inflation. Right, I'll get you a calculator and then you can just look at it. Thank you very much indeed. We've got to run. Dr Emily Ball, uh, a GP, uh, who can't add up. Uh, I can. Uh, it's nearly 12 o'clock. This is Talk TV. Across the UK, online and on DAB, the independent republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. So if you enjoyed that, be sure to catch the whole show 10 to 1, Monday to Friday on Talk Radio, via DAB, online or via the Talk Radio app. If you have an opinion on the stories we cover, we'd love to hear from you. 
Call us 0344 499 1000 or tweet at Talk Radio during the show to have your say. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns.